Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. So about a year ago, we had a chance to look into the future, specifically this future. Hurricane Harvey, state of emergency. We're not measuring in inches of rain, we're measuring in feet of rain. Harvey, the most powerful hurricane to hit this state since John F. Kennedy was president, is now a massive tropical storm. The city of Houston suffered the worst flooding in its history from Hurricane Harvey. When people talk about it today, they use words like unprecedented, unimaginable. But we want to take you back in time, nearly a year before the storm hit, when we talked to a guy who saw some of that flooding coming, flooding that was entirely preventable. You're going to have to buckle up, I'm afraid. Richard Long works for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Nina Satija, our producer based at the Texas Tribune, drove around with him back in October of 2016. Okay, we're going to take a ride up the slope. Richard drives his white Ford pickup truck 35 feet up a steep earthen dam. So steep, Nina's a little nervous. It'll do it without any issues. Okay. A few seconds later. Is this the top of the this is the top of the dam? We're on top of the dam right now. You're looking into the reservoir right now. Looking down from the dam into the Barker Reservoir, Nina doesn't see water. Instead, it looks like a giant park. We have deer, bobcat, people recreating. We have soccer fields out here, ball fields, shooting ranges. If you look at Houston on Google Maps, there are two massive patches of green way west of downtown. One is the Barker Reservoir, which Richard and Nina are looking into right now. There's another one just like it nearby called Attics. They're what's called dry reservoirs. They only fill up during really big rainstorms, And the idea is to collect the rainwater here so it doesn't flood downtown Houston. Richard's job is to make sure the 20 miles of earthen dams surrounding the reservoirs hold all that water in place. I've had some people call me and say, hey, my kid can't play soccer. Get the water off my soccer field. Do they realize their soccer field is actually a reservoir? Well, you explain it to them and some of them get it. There's more than soccer fields inside those reservoirs. To make that point, Richard drives just a few minutes away to what looks like a typical Houston suburb. No sidewalks, two-story houses with big two-car garages, and a few scattered apartment buildings. So we're on the inside of the reservoir right now. And here's apartment complexes on the inside of the reservoir. We're inside by... We are inside the reservoir. Not on on government property. Okay. Apartments inside the reservoir. How can that be? Well, when these projects went up back in the 1940s, the Army Corps built them so that a total of 50 square miles of land would flood behind those earthen dams. But they only bought 38 square miles. At the time, it didn't matter because hardly anyone lived out there. It was mostly rice farms and ranches. But eventually, developers bought that extra land and they built houses and apartment buildings. Nina asks about the people who live there now, Do they know they live in a reservoir? Most do not. Is it a secret? No, it is not. But they just don't know. So if we ever go to maximum flood, we're going to have water in their first stories. Maximum flood is exactly what happened 10 months later. Tropical Storm Harvey, now a history-making disaster. And a few weeks after Harvey, Nina went back to see what happened to those apartments. She takes the story from here. 
Hi. Is it okay to drive in? No, to be honest, they shut it down. They shut it down? Why is that? Because we're flooded. I'm back in the same neighborhood, and it looks completely different. The whole apartment complex is cordoned off. Windows are covered in plastic. Workers are walking around in white coveralls. Eventually, a supervisor drives up to the front gate to talk with me. Hi there. How's it going? Good. Um, I'm a reporter. Was the flooding here really bad? Um, about four to six feet high. Four to six feet? Yes. Are you recording? I am recording. I have to be careful. Well, we have to be careful because we can't release information from the property without authority. That's the end of it. He asks me to stop recording. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. I want to know if residents around here realize they're living inside a reservoir. I end up on a street called Lockmere Lane. Almost all the houses here flooded, too. There are heaps of drywall, furniture, and wet carpet on top of manicured green lawns. People are home, cleaning up. Hi there. Hi. Um, my name's Nina. I'm a reporter with the Texas Tribune. Yes. And I'm, we're kind of driving around these neighborhoods to talk to people about what they've been dealing with with Gosh. the flood. So <laughs> no, don't worry. I don't this isn't how Anita Bunning usually receives visitors. She's holding a bag of trash. Behind her, the walls of her first floor are totally ripped out, and fans are drying what used to be her living room. I'm standing on this piece of cardboard on her front step. Do you love my lovely welcome mat? My original welcome mat is, in, is long gone. Anita tells me more than a foot of water sat in the house for weeks. It's unlivable right now. And for the moment, they're doing a lot of the repairs themselves. You pulled all of that out yourself? I pulled all that myself. All that wood from the yeah. bottom shelf. Yeah. Wow. Now we're getting quotes, but I don't know what we can afford. All the damage is going to cost at least $100,000. The Bunnings don't have it. Like many people here, they never bought flood insurance. Their county government doesn't consider them to be in a floodplain because they're far from any rivers or creeks. Anita's husband, Tom, says that was a big selling point when they moved here. I never wanted to live anywhere near or purchase a home that would be in a floodplain. It's been weeks since Harvey, and the Bunnings still don't know their house is actually inside a reservoir. I pull out a 25-year-old document. I got from the local property records office in Fort Bend County. It's called a plat, a big map that developers have to draw up when they build a new neighborhood. Local officials have to sign off on each plat before a development's allowed to go through. But most home buyers never see it. These are general notes on this document. And do you see that one? It's number so 14. About the, something is designed to. The font is too small for Anita to read, so her daughter Meredith reads it instead. Oh, my. I feel like I'm at the eye doctor. Okay. <laughs> Whew. This subdivision is adjacent to Barker Reservoir and is subject to extended controlled inundation. Extended controlled inundation under the management of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is what the rest of the sentence says. In other words, your property could be flooded for an extended period of time. But that's not the whole story. When the plat says this subdivision is adjacent to Barker Reservoir, that just means it's next to the government-owned portion. Remember, there's a lot of land designed to flood that the Army Corps didn't buy in the 1940s. Back then, it was rice fields. Today, it's their neighborhood. The Army Corps told us that it's accurate to say that your homes are inside Barker Reservoir. Wow. Yeah, not just, not adjacent, but yeah, inside. That position is key. <laughs> yes. <laughs> According to our analysis, their home is one of 14,000 inside the Barker and Attics reservoirs. More than 5,000 of them flooded during Harvey. How is it that people like the Bunnings could buy a home and never be warned that, hey, by the way, this house was built inside a reservoir and one day it might flood? We found a realtor, Sam Chaudhry, who sold more than 50 homes out here, a lot of them in a neighborhood called Grand Lakes. On Marble Hollow, on Southcott, Columbus Falls. Um, These are all names of streets where you sold homes in Grand Lakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you, ever, do you ever give your clients the plat? Do you ever see the plat? We actually give them something better. We actually have the survey done. A survey is a newer map. And it's supposed to have more information about a particular property. Sam says plats are old, used mostly when developers are building a neighborhood, not when someone's buying a home. But when Sam shows me the survey, there's nothing on there about Barker Reservoir. 
Flood note, according to firm, da da da, this property is in zone X and does not lie within the 100-year floodplain. Is this what you're required to, are you required to give the buyer the survey? Buyer actually buys it. They pay $500 for this thing. $400 to $500 for this thing, actually. I have the plat for Grand Lakes here. I show Sam where the tiny font is. And is subject to extended control inundation under the management of U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. What exactly does that mean? It basically means Grand Lakes is actually designed to flood in a situation like Harvey. Really? It's behind these dams. In essence, Grand Lakes is inside the reservoir. So if it is inside the reservoir, how would they approve these plans? I wanted to know the same thing. To try and get an answer, I went to see this guy. Come on in, have a seat. Here we are again. Here we are again. I don't know why you guys want to talk to me. You should be tired by now. I've been to Steve Costello's office a lot over the past couple years. People call him the flood czar, and he works up on the fourth floor of Houston City Hall. He helps direct policy to protect the city from flooding. I asked Steve if he knew that homes in the Houston area sit on land designed to flood by the Army Corps. No, I wasn't paying much attention to that, to be candid. I'm not quite sure if I really knew that much about it. The guy in charge of flooding policy in Houston is telling me he didn't know there were thousands of homes in these reservoirs. He says all those homes were built before his time. I don't know when the developments occurred. It's not like they occurred yesterday. You know, they've been there for quite a long time. I pull out a plat to show Steve. It's the same one I showed realtor Sam Chaudhry. This plat was approved in 2004. And it actually has Costello Inc. Right, there on the corner. So is that your engineering or development firm? Right, that was the engineering firm I formerly was employed with. He's being modest. Steve Costello founded Costello Inc. and was president of the firm until 2015. Even as I'm showing him this plat, he still doesn't seem to understand that it's in the reservoir. It's outside the government-owned land. Even though it's outside the government-owned land, it's still inside the reservoir. It's still in a part of the land that's designed to flood. Well, if that information was available at the time that these developments would occur, it probably wouldn't happen. The developer wouldn't have developed those lights. Except I point out to Steve the information was available at the time. It's written on the very plat that his engineering firm worked on. They were within the flood pool of Barker Reservoir. I'm not familiar with that. I didn't personally work on the project, but it was my firm that worked on it. You probably have to ask other engineers and other developers. Even for your own firm? I, you could ask the firm, the people that are to worked on the project. We go back and forth about this for a while. Eventually, Steve just says he doesn't want to look backward. He also says the city of Houston can't fix this alone. The reservoirs extend into the outskirts of Houston, which means county governments are also responsible. My name is Bob Abair, and I've been county judge in Fort Bend County since 2003. I'm in my 15th year in office. The title is kind of a weird Texas thing. Bob Abair doesn't have judicial powers. He's just the top elected official in the county. Maybe as everything worked out, uh, they wouldn't have built back there. They would have taken more steps. I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm, you know, I'm not a career politician. I just sort of stepped into this job when my predecessor had a heart attack. In fact, our reporting shows that thousands of homes went up inside the reservoirs after he took office. There were plats for those new neighborhoods, plats that he had to sign. There's a plat here that I found from your time as county judge. It was approved in 2004. And so your signature is here. Right. So why sign these documents when they have the disclosure, but then say, actually, I didn't realize that we had all these homes. In I don't read the plats. We sign dozens of plats every week. Could the engineer have done a better review since it has the disclosure on there so that you no, all are you No, ma'am. Uh, uh, you're playing Perry Mason now. Screw your head around and go back to July of this year. Mm -hmm. Platting in Fort Bend County wasn't important to you, wasn't important to the Texas Tribune, all right? Well, why won't you come? Why didn't you come in here and talk to me? You, uh, didn't you know Harvey was going to happen? Actually, we've known for more than a year that these homes would one day flood, and we've been reporting on it. Allow me to screw my head around all the way to October 2016. Remember, that's when Richard Long from the Army Corps gave me the tour we heard earlier. So we're on the inside of the reservoir right now. And here's apartment complexes on the inside of the reservoir. Richard Long isn't allowed to talk to me anymore because the Army Corps is facing lawsuits from flooded residents. 
not just from people inside the reservoir, but also ones who flooded downstream when Addicts and Barker got too full. The record rain in this region has put reservoirs and dams under tremendous strain. During Harvey, the dams surrounding the reservoirs had to hold so much water, the Army Corps worried they might fail. If that happened, downtown Houston could have literally been swept away by a massive wall of water. So the Army Corps made a hard choice, opening floodgates to relieve the pressure. And the Army Corps of Engineers says it had to let the water out of those reservoirs, essentially to save downtown because they were filling up too fast. But that water... When the engineers opened those floodgates, they sent water rushing towards neighborhoods downstream. Thousands of homes flooded, including Cynthia Neely's. It's like the wall is curved. Well, what? Yeah, it is. It's, it's buckled way out. If you get down, you can see really... Oh, my God. Buckled in the, in the... Cynthia's showing me a brick wall on her house that looks like it's about to collapse. During Harvey, she thought her home was safe. But then, just as the storm was petering out, water started pouring in because the Army Corps opened those floodgates. And then it got to a point that it started coming in faster and faster, and we just had to go upstairs. Nearly two feet of water sat on Cynthia's first floor for weeks. Now she's suing the Army Corps. Do you think this is salvageable, the house? I don't know, but I, I don't really care. I mean, I don't want to salvage it. Nothing's going to change in the next probably 10 years that will keep us from this happening again. We're in harm's way. Addicts and Barker were supposed to protect Cynthia. But all those houses upstream, inside the reservoirs, put her at risk. Back when the area was just grasslands, water absorbed naturally into the ground. As it's been developed and paved over, now more and more water collects behind those earthen dams during every storm. For years, the Army Corps has warned Congress and local officials that the aging dams can't handle it. They're now at the top of a list of most dangerous dams in the country. Cynthia says the Army Corps should never have let things get this bad. Their excuses are so lame, they make me sick. They've had almost 80 years to make those dams safe. They saw danger, they did nothing. Will you stay in Houston? No. You leave Houston? I love this city. I have loved this city from the moment I stepped foot on the ground and... Um, But I'm 68 years old. My husband's 71. I want to be able to sleep at night. Since Harvey, local officials have requested $6 billion from Congress to buy out and demolish homes in the reservoirs. There's no telling if it'll ever be approved. Meanwhile, people keep buying homes in these same neighborhoods. Remember the Bunning family? Their entire neighborhood is in Barker Reservoir. More than a dozen homes have sold there since Harvey hit, and I haven't found any real estate listings disclosing the reservoirs. Not a single one says, this home is sitting on top of land that's designed to flood. That story was produced by Reveal's Nina Satija, who's based at the Texas Tribune. She had reporting help from the Tribune's Kia Collier and Al Shaw at ProPublica. To find a lot more houses in danger of catastrophic flooding, you don't have to look inside a reservoir. You can just go to the Louisiana coast, where the next storm could change thousands of lives. People will migrate, one after another, and towns will fall apart as a result. That's next on Reveal. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch Season 2 wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. 
Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. In the last few years, there's a phrase that people started throwing around. The world's first climate change refugees. We should expect to see more climate migrants. In some ways, they are also environmental refugees. Climate change migrants and climate change refugees and evacuees. Whatever you want to call them, people are forced to leave their homes because of things like rising seas, rising temperatures, and extreme weather. The U.N. says there could be up to a billion in the coming decades, including millions right here in the U.S. People like Malcolm Lacoste, or as his friends call him, Lil Mackie. He's a shrimper about 100 miles southwest of New Orleans. He's on his boat just getting back from four days catching shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico. It's nice to be getting home. On board with him is WWNO reporter Tegan Wendland. It's real pretty up here. I think that's why I like it so much. My scenery all the time is what people take pictures of. The early morning sun sparkles on the water of Bayou de Large, a channel that runs from the ocean all the way to Mackey's house. Here on the Louisiana coast, the bayou is like the main street of a small town. Every house you pass so far is first, second cousins. Oh, wow. Just... You go from the Lacoste to the Lavos to the Dehards, it's, it's all family. But the water that connects these families also makes their neighborhood increasingly dangerous. The land here is disappearing, making it one of the most vulnerable places in the state to flooding from hurricanes and tropical storms. Some of the houses are raised up high on stilts. Some are empty because owners have moved away. Those who remain, like Mackie, have to plan their lives around hurricane season. The first thing I do is watch the weather, especially once you get into June and July, when your storm starts really brewing up around. I have to get in, lift everything up that I can, get it out of harm's way, secure my boat, and then get out of Dodge. As storms continue to get worse, Louisiana's Republican legislature has been reluctant to place the blame on climate change, but they can't ignore the effects. The state's been planning for the next big storm ever since the devastation of Hurricane Katrina more than a decade ago. And thousands of people like Mackie are waiting to see if those plans will help them. Tegan Wendland takes it from here. You can't really see what's happening to the Louisiana coast when you're on a boat. Because first off, the coast is all around you. It isn't a straight line of beach or cliffs. On a map, it looks more like the bottom of the state's boot shape is unraveling into marshy fingers that reach out into the Gulf. The best way to really picture it ready? is to see it from above. Ready? Woohoo! I take a tour on a tiny propeller plane. On board with me is a coastal scientist, Alex Kolker, and an environmental law professor, Rob Verchik. Oh, look at those birds over there. Oh, got it. Little white pelicans, it looks like. Yeah, they get up pretty high. We dodge the pelicans and look down on what's making Louisiana's coast such a dangerous place to live. Alex points out how the land is becoming marsh and the marshes are dissolving into water. That intact marsh that we flew over at the start of the, of the flight is probably what these areas used to look like 100, 150 years ago. And now we've just, you know, if you eyeball it, you know, it's 60, 40, 70, 30 water to land. Land is washing away into the Gulf. 2,000 square miles have disappeared since the 1930s. It's caused by sea level rise, long-term erosion, and oil companies. You can see how this area was drilled for oil, right? See all these little canals? They've dug canals so their boats can reach oil rigs they built out in the marshes. And those canals have eroded and turned to open water. To preserve the land that remains, the state's pumping in dirt to create marshes and barrier islands and building levees, basically walls to hold back the ocean. As the plane turns, Alex tells me to look down. So that very unnatural feature is the, uh, is the shape of the levee. It's a straight line made of tons of dirt dividing the open water from land where you can see houses. But not all of the houses are safely behind the levees. That was Lil Mackey's house right back there. Nice. Yeah, we flew right over it. Nice. The water seems to be very, very close. You know, you and in the air, you can really see how close the water is. Mackey's house is on an unprotected little spit of land, surrounded by water. So how do you think it feels to be 
some of the family is that are watching this big levee go up, and they know that they're outside of it. Oh, well, that's, that's got to be devastating, I would think, right? Because they know exactly what that means. That's like the, uh, like the lifeboat sailing away without you on it. After we land, I ask him a follow-up. What happens to the people who are left behind? Well, people will migrate, one after another. Uh, and towns will, will fall apart as a result, and economies will tank, and it'll all be very chaotic. It will happen. Uh, the only question is, are we going to get ahead of the curve? Louisiana has tried to get ahead of the curve. After Hurricane Katrina, the state unified its planning powers under a single agency, the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. Bren Haas is the lead planner. You look more prepared than I. (laughs) He's a little self-deprecating, which must come in handy when you're trying to pull off such an ambitious mission. We uh, are charged with uh, restoring our coastline and reducing risk, protecting our citizens from hurricane storm surges. For the last decade, that's meant trying to save the land by building all of those marshes, barrier islands, and levees. But in the 2017 version of the agency's coastal master plan, that's changed. We know um, that the future of our coast will be a, a much different coast than it is today. Um, and by different, you mean there will be less of it? Yes. Yes. Um, we, we can't restore our coast to the level that it was at 10 years ago, 100 years ago, certainly. The state is now admitting it's a losing battle. Some land will be lost forever. Flooding from storms will get worse. And there are some people on the coast the state will not be able to protect. The Coastal Agency used an elaborate statistical model to forecast how bad flooding might get. If a strong storm would cause at least five feet of flooding, they say you should raise your home a little higher than that. And if the floodwaters are projected to hit 12 feet, you should just move. They estimate there are 2,400 houses like this. And the plan is to pay the homeowners to leave and knock those houses down. Just putting that down on paper, Bren says, that's kind of a big deal. I think it's uh, important to note that um, this is really the first time we've had this kind of this level of discussion about this sensitive of a topic. People don't want to be told they have to move, especially coastal Louisianans. They're fiercely independent. Many of their ancestors moved to the coast in the first place because they didn't want the government telling them what to do. Native Americans driven into the marshes by the Indian Removal Act and scrappy French settlers like the grandparents of Mackey, the shrimper. A big storm could cause 14 feet of flooding for his house. That would make him eligible for a buyout. I wonder if he would take an offer to buy and demolish his house. I would have to think about it a lot. Because that's my whole livelihood. It's not just where I live at. Uh, Probably now that I've been doing it a while and I'm getting toward the end of my... I would probably consider it. I seriously consider it. It's not going to get any better. The marsh isn't coming back. Now, remember, Mackey's house is just one of 2,400. So I wonder what the rest of them would think. And would money change their thinking? I decide to do an informal survey of Mackey's neighbors. Hello. Starting with a group of older men fixing the engine on a shrimp boat. Mm. Reveals Stan Elkhorn came with. So how big would a government check have to be? to convince any of you guys to to, to buy cameras. $100 million a piece. $100 million! You see, most of us down here, we we wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So I think that little interaction gives you a sense of what you encounter down here a lot. But as we talk to people, we find it doesn't take much to change their minds. For instance, we come up to one house, Windows covered in plastic and plywood. Hi. Hi. We're reporters. Okay. Diana Liner answers the door. Is that something that you would be interested in? If there were money to help you move, would you move? Uh, I mean, I'm 57 years old. My husband's 61. We're too old to start over on a new house and new payments. Mm-hmm. She says she's flooded and rebuilt so many times she can't remember. After Katrina, she applied for help to elevate her house. But she couldn't get the money. The bureaucracy involved was just too complicated. And the laws are so stupid that my house didn't get raised. Somebody's waving That's my daughter. Her daughter, Consuela Punch, 
peeks through the window shades to see who her mom's talking to. Hi. Then comes out the front door, wearing a cheetah print robe. So we were asking your mom about buyouts, if there were any kind of buyout program. The ocean's coming up, more storms are coming, people here will have to move. It's one of the most vulnerable parts of the state. And so we were talking We don't want to move. But if there were money, would you? Yeah. They don't have a lot of faith that a new government program will help them. But if it was easy, if it paid enough money, that's a different story. Again and again, it doesn't take long to get from no, we don't want to move to name a price. All it really takes is a conversation about flood risk, but also about dollars and cents, which Bren Haas, the planner at the Coastal Authority, understands. Our first step needs to be to go to that local entity, the community, or whatever it may be, and say, here's what we're seeing, here's what our data is telling us about land loss and storm surges and, and vulnerabilities, you know, and here's some options to address those bad situations. And that's uh, happening? You are going to the That's schools? not happening yet, no. It's not happening yet. It's not happening yet. The state hasn't told any of those 2,400 households they should move. In fact, despite their elaborate computer modeling, do you know where these specific properties are? Uh, I do not. Um, I don't have a list, uh, you know, of, of structures in my, in my pocket or anything like that. The agency couldn't tell us where the houses were, so we requested their data about where the worst flooding will happen, and we made our own map. That's how we found Mackie and his neighbors. Do you want to see the map we made? Sure. Reveal's data team used red to mark the areas where the state wants people to leave, and large swaths of the coast were red. Bren takes a long, hard look at the map. I think, it is, I think it's very interesting. <laughs> he didn't have much of a reaction, but he did email us later asking if he could get a copy. It seems like they could have made the map themselves if they really wanted to. But Bren says the state is purposefully not going out and looking for these people for a very simple reason. The buyout program would cost $1.2 billion. And so far, Bren says they don't have that money. There's been almost none. There really has been. Not, not much uh, that would have been available for this kind of thing. And without money, the buyout plan is really just a fancy blueprint. But if the coast is such a big priority for the state, why don't they have the money? Why can't they just appropriate it from the state budget? We asked State Representative Jerome Zerang. Why not appropriate it? Because we don't have it. Why aren't you driving in a Lamborghini right now? Because you can't afford it. The reality is the state doesn't have the money. States usually don't have the money to deal with major disasters like hurricanes and floods. They turn to the federal government and disaster-related grants from the Federal Emergency Management Agency or the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Some of those grants pay for things that sound like Louisiana's buyout program, but they're different. I get a first-hand look at a program paid for with one of these federal grants in Roberta Grove. It's a subdivision a half-hour drive from where Mackie the Shrimper lives. I'm going up this bridge, right? Yes, going up and over the bridge. I go there with Jennifer Gerbasi. She's a local planner whose whole job is managing federal disaster money. So these little plots here are where buyouts occurred? Yes, these are where, bio, where buyouts have occurred. Okay, so we're just looking at just a mowed lot here, and there's houses on either side. Mm-hmm. Which is how most of our buyouts are. They're next to other houses. I point to one of the empty lots. This one says it's for sale. Yes, it is for sale. So someone can build here again? Yes. People can build here again, as long as they raise the new houses a few feet off the ground. The federal money being spent here isn't getting people to abandon dangerous areas before a storm. It's helping people who've already been hit. Republican Congressman Garrett Graves wants to change this. He represents much of southern Louisiana, where people are still cleaning up after more than 100,000 homes flooded in 2016. When I met him, he'd just come back from Washington, where he spends a lot of his time trying to get federal disaster money. It's an unpredictable funding stream. And now he's competing for relief funds in the aftermath of hurricanes in Houston and Puerto Rico. He says this whole approach, where we come in with money after the disaster, is just not very effective. Studies show a dollar spent before a disaster saves $4 later. And I think instead of throwing a nickel at every $10 problem across the country, which is what we're doing right now, um, we instead come in and corral or focus those investments on things that are true priorities. Like, for example, investing in buyouts in instances where that unfortunately is the best investment to where we're spending money before these disasters strike and saving the billions that we come in and spend after disasters happen. 
But these days, he says, that's beginning to feel like more and more of an uphill battle. In 2013, then-President Obama ordered federal agencies to work together to prepare for climate change. But President Trump has rescinded that order. Since the state doesn't have the money and the federal government isn't coming to the rescue, coastal planner Bren Haas says there's only one place left to look for money. A 2006 law that gives Louisiana a cut of offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. There's a kind of justice to using this money, since oil companies are already implicated both in climate change and in eroding the coast. Next year, Louisiana's cut is supposed to be $70 million. That's a lot of money, until you compare it to the price tag of the buyout program. I mean, that's not anywhere near $1.2 billion. No, no. You can't ignore the fact that the dollars aren't there to do it. Uh, Obviously, that's a huge roadblock uh, to implementation. And as long as he doesn't have the dollars to actually help people, Bren doesn't see a lot of upside in telling people they should move. To go to an individual homeowner and say, this is what needs to happen, you know, in this particular location um, um, might actually be irresponsible at this point. That's (laughs) ridiculous. Scott Eustace works for the Gulf Restoration Network, an environmental group advocating for people on the coast. I mean, it is the responsibility of the state to inform its residents that there are threats to their public safety. And they need to be talking to people about that now. He says people don't even understand the danger they're in, let alone their options. And if they did, they'd be fighting to get help. If the state did have the money and helped all of those 2,400 households move, there would still be a lot of people left behind, like the Williams family. Ollie and Daniel Williams live just northeast of New Orleans in a little rural subdivision called Avery Estates. They grew up out here. This is where we wanted to be forever. We wanted to build our home with our family, have memories. Our families have been living out here since the 70s. So, I mean, my grandpa used to farm pigs out here. Never got water this bad. It floods all the time now. And when it does, the water quickly rises in their yard. They've raised their home 13 feet in the air, so the house stays dry, but the cars get stuck, the kids miss school, and life is tough enough already without the flooding. Daniel's disabled, and they live off of his disability check, only about $1,000 a month for them, their two kids, and five dogs. Personally, I only give myself another year on this property, if that, and I'm fed up with it. I'm disgusted. I hate coming home. It's just, we can't be the family we want to be back here. So it's cutting out a lot of our lives. But once again, is the government going to give you enough money to do anything, you know? I mean... At least when it comes to Louisiana's proposed buyout plan, probably not. On our map, the area where the Williams live is just outside of the red zone eligible for buyouts. The projected flooding where they are just isn't quite bad enough. So how does it make you feel to see that you know, that red zone is coming up. That's sickening and sad. It's sad that we're like the only little square that's left out. It isn't just that little square that's left out. There are a lot of people across Louisiana who are getting flooded and want out. But for now, they're all waiting for the next big storm to hit and the federal money that comes with it. That's Tegan Wendland, coastal reporter at WWNO. That story was produced by Stan Alcorn. As tragic as it is to lose a home when disaster hits, the fact is that some people also lose loved ones. Coming up, how the government of Puerto Rico is vastly undercounting the number of people killed during Hurricane Maria and causing outrage among those who survived. You're listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. This hour, we're talking about how we can be better prepared for rising seas and worsening hurricanes. More than three months since Hurricane Maria battered Puerto Rico the island is still grappling with all kinds of challenges, including tallying the number of people who died. Well, thank you very much. uh, It was a great trip and a beautiful place. 
When President Trump first visited Puerto Rico back in October, about two weeks after Maria made landfall, he talked about the official death count, which was then just 16 people. If you look at a real catastrophe like Katrina, and you look at the tremendous hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that died, and you look at what happened here with really a storm that was just totally overpowering. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. Uh, what is your what is your death count as of this moment? 17? 16. 16 people certified. 16 people versus in the thousands. Trump used the low number of certified deaths to say that the hurricane wasn't a real catastrophe. That's significant because at the time, the administration was facing criticism for not doing enough to help Puerto Rico recover from the crisis. Today, the official death count has risen to 64. But public health experts say the actual number of hurricane dead is likely much, much higher, potentially more than 1,000 people. You may have heard that in just the last few weeks, the Puerto Rican government announced it will investigate how many people actually died. That's something one news organization has been pushing for since the earliest days of the storm. Puerto Rico's Center for Investigative Journalism, or CPI, has been covering this story from the beginning. Producer Marlon Bishop from the NPR program Latino USA teamed up with them to bring us this story. Omaya Sosa Pascual is a reporter at CPI. She's been working overtime since the hurricane, and that's not a figure of speech. She's been putting in so many extra hours that her husband threatened to get a divorce. I had an important interview here, and uh, usually for me to get home at 8 o'clock at night, 8.30, it's not a big deal. But him dealing with the generator that broke down, with the kid crying, everything dark, the mosquitoes, and he was going crazy. He got okay afterwards, and we didn't get that divorce, but he was very close to saying, you know what? Omaya first started looking into the death counts in Puerto Rico beginning just days after the hurricane hit, when she began getting these tips. Doctors were saying, listen, we have a lot of people in the morgues. That's not normal. It wasn't just the morgues. Hospitals without electricity were transferring patients who were in really bad shape to other facilities. Doctors told her many were dying. I was getting numbers from them. I got uh, this week five transfers. They all died. And Omaya said to herself, something's not right with the government death count of just 16 people. I think there's something big happening here. So I I started doing my own accounting. Omaya began reaching out to hospitals, funeral homes, and mayors, asking if they knew of cases that weren't counted. She didn't just want a number. She wanted to find specific cases with names and documentation that she could bring to the government as proof that their death count was wrong. Today we're in Carolina, a middle-class suburb of San Juan, to follow up on a tip from a woman named Miriam Rosa Vargas. We pull up to a small modern home in a gated community. Miriam is waiting for us. We sit down in the living room, and Miriam begins to tell us her story. Her father, formerly a successful journalist and musician, had Parkinson's disease. Papi tenía una condición de Parkinson. And he was showing signs of dementia. But when Hurricane Maria struck and the electricity went out, his health suddenly worsened. The heat. El calor. The humidity. La humedad. It was suffocating. Sofocante que había le empezó a afectar. The family would try to fan him to cool him down, but he was looking really bad. Five days after the hurricane, they decided to call an ambulance. And when they arrived at the hospital, doctors told them he was having a heart attack. On top of that, the condition of the hospital was unlike anything Miriam had ever seen. Completamente llenos. It was completely full. There were people everywhere, lining every hallway, packed in every possible space. At one point, she says, a patient's blood just started pooling on the floor, and nobody came to clean it up. Miriam says it was horrific, like something she'd seen in a movie. Doctors told Miriam that because of the condition of the hospital, which was being powered by generators, they were unable to treat her father's heart attack. Hay que moverlo a otro hospital. But phones were down, and there were no available ambulances. By the time they found one, hours later, he was in critical condition, and it was too risky to move him. Miriam says they put her dad in an exam room, pulled the curtain, and told her they'd do their best to treat him there. 
When she returned to the hospital the next morning, she went over to the area where her father was. She opened the curtain. And her father wasn't there. And at that moment, she says, her world fell apart. A doctor came and told her that her dad died in the middle of the night. The hospital would have called, but remember, there were no phones. Miriam had wanted a chance to say goodbye, and now she wouldn't get that. Miriam's dad isn't included on the official list of hurricane-related deaths. Omaya asked her one last question. Do you believe your father died because of the hurricane? Without a doubt, Miriam says. The government agrees these kinds of indirect deaths should be counted. However, Omaya and her team have documented more than 50 cases like Miriam's father, cases not included on the official list. There's one woman who was unable to get the dialysis she needed after the storm, a man whose oxygen supply was cut off when the electricity went out. These are just the dead Omaya has confirmed so far. The actual number of hurricane dead is likely many times greater. While the official death count is still just in the double digits, a separate government agency that tracks demographic information shows there were 472 more deaths this September, when the hurricane hit, than in the previous September. I wanted to hear from officials in Puerto Rico about why there's such a huge disparity between these estimates and the official count. Going upstairs to meet Mr. Pesquera. So I requested an interview with the man in charge. Hector Pesquera is probably the second most powerful person in Puerto Rico after the governor right now. He was born here, then moved to the mainland where he worked for the FBI for almost three decades. Now he's head of Puerto Rico's newly created Department of Public Security, coordinating with FEMA and helping to run recovery efforts. Pesquera wears glasses, has a short white beard, and shakes your hand like he's trying to break it. I asked Pesquera about those 472 extra deaths in September. Does he agree that the increase is related to Hurricane Maria? I don't agree with that at all. I, I cannot explain it. I can't go by inferences. I can't go by rumors. We have to go by what we can prove. After my interview with Pesquera, Omaya and her team of investigative reporters analyzed new demographic data. It turns out if you combine September and October, there were over a thousand more deaths this year than in the same period the year before. Pesquera says he'll happily investigate cases brought by family members to determine if they should be added to the list. But that doesn't totally make sense to me. I ask him, what about cases where the bodies are already buried or cremated, like Miriam's father? And so at that point, is there any way you can do your investigation? No, there's no way. Do you acknowledge that there was a health care crisis that happened in the wake of this emergency? Fortunately not. If he didn't catch that, when I asked Pesquera if there was a health care crisis after the storm, he says, fortunately not. But it's a difficult case to make. For more than a month, hospitals were without power or running on generators. Funeral home directors say bodies piled up. I asked a frustrated Pesquera if he believes the real death count could be higher than what they've been able to certify. It, it could happen. Yeah, it could happen. Of course it could happen. But it doesn't mean that it happened. It doesn't mean that it's not the accurate count. It doesn't mean that, why didn't you do it? Well, why didn't we do what? Certifying deaths after a natural disaster is complicated. To streamline that process, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they created a toolkit earlier this year, which the CDC recommends that local and regional governments distribute to hospitals and funeral homes ahead of a storm. The territorial government confirmed that it did email the toolkits, but after the storm, not before. Reporter Omaya Sosa Pascual has spoken with dozens of doctors at various hospitals throughout Puerto Rico who all say they never received anything like it or any other guidance. Pesquera maintains that if deaths are missing from the official tally, Puerto Rico's government isn't to blame. He says responsibility lies with doctors and even family members of the dead. If the family had concerns at any given point during this process, then they should raise their hands, excuse me. But we depend now on the moral and ethical behavior of an attending physician and on the family members to bring up the issue. In the end, limited communication between the government and hospitals led to widespread confusion over what counts as a hurricane-related death and who should be certifying them. 
In the muddle, says Omaya, there was also the practical matter of bodies decomposing because of inadequate refrigeration. I think there's a combination between the inexperience of this uh, administration. I think they didn't want to alarm people with what was going on, and they wanted to look good. Bottom line, Omaya says, the Puerto Rican government is grossly undercounting the dead. Why do, why do you think this matters? Like, when you think about, like, why, why does it matter that we get the death count right? It matters for several reasons. The most important one is to actually try and avoid more deaths because people are still dying because of these situations that have not been identified and prioritized. And for families. People like Miriam, who want the deaths of their loved ones to be acknowledged for what they really were. Omaya also brings up President Trump's visit and how he used the death count as a kind of shorthand for how not so bad the disaster was. He actually said, literally, this is not a real catastrophe like Katrina. So, you know, we don't need so much help because we only had 16 uh, victims or or deaths here. And that's just, uh, you know, not true. What is true is that with pressure steadily mounting, the Puerto Rican government is finally admitting that the official count may in fact be wrong. Governor Ricardo Rosselló pointed to news reports, like those from Omaya and a Center for Investigative Journalism, analyzing the increase in deaths after the storm. Just after the new year, he ordered a full review of deaths related to Hurricane Maria. Thanks to reporter Marlon Bishop, this story was a co-production with NPR's Latino USA and the Center for Investigative Journalism based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And be sure to listen to this week's Latino USA, where Marlon travels to a rural town in Puerto Rico and meets a funeral home director who admits that many people in his town were cremated and buried after the hurricane, people who are not part of the official death count. Look out for Latino USA on your local public radio station or on your podcast app. Our show was edited by Brett Myers and Deb George. Nina Satija and Stan Alcorn were our lead producers. Special thanks to Dave Harmon from the Texas Tribune, Reveal's senior data reporter Eric Segarra, and the Ford Foundation for supporting our reporting in Puerto Rico. Our lead sound designer and engineer is Jim Briggs. We had help this week from Ramteen Arablui, Catherine Raimondo, and Kat Shukman. Amy Powell's our editor-in-chief. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.